Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Welcome to this conversation with Jacqueline Maley and Deborah Oswald. My name's Susan Windham. I'm a journalist, a writer, a book reviewer, a former literary editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's wonderful to be at this great festival again. I want to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm here with these two multi-talented, award-winning Australian writers, two very fine women I've known for quite a long time. Their new novels take on some of the issues confronting our society, domestic violence, internet trolling, medical and media ethics, and other challenges of contemporary women's lives, from sexual relationships and motherhood to friendship and work. And they're expressed in very human forms and very deeply absorbing stories and beautiful writing. The Family Doctor is a moral thriller, I'd like to describe it, by Deborah Oswald, who's well known as a playwright, screenwriter and novelist for both children and adults. Deborah was creator and head writer of the television series Offspring, and her previous novels for adults were Useful and The Whole Bright Year. Deborah walked off the stage a week ago when I was at the, at the performance from her sold-out one-woman show, Is There Something Wrong With That Lady? about the ups and downs in her life in the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll mention that later. The Truth About Her is the first novel published by Jacqueline Maley, who is a senior journalist and columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, writing on politics and social issues and sometimes lighter issues lighter topics. Um, Jacqueline shared a Walkley Award with Kate McClymont last year for their investigation into sexual harassment by the former High Court judge Dyson Hayden. So congratulations for that, Jackie. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Both your novels start with a death and Wow, a punch in the, the guts, really, for the reader and the characters. And then they take some very surprising twists and turns. And I don't want to spoil those twists and turns, so I'm going to ask each of you to tell us about what your novel is in the terms that you'd like the, the audience to know. I'm sure some of you have read the books, but many of you won't have yet, so we'll try not to, to give too many spoilers. Deborah. Oh, so the Family Doctor um, sent us on a... Paula, who's a, a sort of dedicated, beloved Sydney GP, who has been um, her best friend and the best friend's children have been staying with her for six months, escaping a, an abusive husband. Paula comes home from... This is not a spoiler, by the way. This happens in the first three pages. Um, You're Paula, allowed to spoil. I'm, I'm allowed, yes, <laughs> I, I can spoil away. Paula comes home from her medical practice one day to find her friend shot dead and the children shot dead. Um, and the estranged husband prowling through the house with a rifle and then shooting himself in front of her. So it starts with the single most distressing scene in the book, so hopefully that won't put you off. Um, and it, the story then concentrates on Paula and her best friend, Anita, who's a court journalist, um, and as they deal with, with their, their grief and their trauma about what's happened... But in Paula's case, can I go this far with the story? Sure. This? In Paula's case, she becomes, who's been a very sort of sober, careful woman all her life, 
but who becomes obsessed with the, the urge to protect vulnerable women. So when a woman comes into her practice who's clearly in danger from a violent husband, Paula is tempted to use her medical skills to solve the problem, shall we say. Um, so, um, and, and, and from then on, it's a sort of, a sort of rush. A, it's a kind of thriller, but not in a puzzle mystery way, more in a kind of, you want to hopefully you want to find out what happens next as the two women deal with what's happened and deal with what Paula's done and her friend works out what she's done and so forth. Yeah. Can I ask you what the starting point for the novel was? Was it a character or was it an, the issue of domestic violence? It was, um, it was sitting in bed in the morning reading the paper and yet another story. You all know the stories. There's, there's so many. Um, and feeling this rage burning in my guts. And I didn't think there would be a way to write about it that I could write about it. And then I thought about my sister, who's a GP, and I thought about looking after little bodies. You know, you vaccinate children, you treat their ear infections, and then to know that they're in danger, and you maybe had the means to make that little kid and their mother safe. My, I, it was, it's kind of a... I think of the book as a, as a, a sort of transgressive daydream, mm. a kind of what if we just killed a few of those bastards before they hurt anybody. So... <laughs> So once, you, once your mind goes along with that, but I tried to make it as plausible as possible. So it's not Dexter. It's, it's not, you know, it's not a kind of psychopath killer book. It's more, she's you or me, who suddenly is under pressure, who has the means and crosses the line, and then what happens? Mm. So it came from my rage, and then a kind of little imaginative fantasy trip mm. and a story. Okay. Jacqueline, tell us about your story. Yeah, well, um, mine, mine was a bit of a what-if as well, and it's, it also starts with a death. So, and, it, and again, this is not a, not a spoiler, but the truth about her focuses on a journalist and single mother, um, Susie Hamilton, who um, is under some pressure in her private life because um, it's chaotic, put it that way. And um, in her professional life, she writes an expose of a wellness blogger who has pretended to cure herself of cancer. After she writes the expose, the subject of the expose um, uh, kills herself. And that causes Susie to feel a great deal of shame and guilt. And over the course of the novel, I suppose, to cut a long story short, she um, is forced into a reckoning with herself, the consequences of her actions, the stories that she's told about other people and the stories that she's told her about herself about herself. So the book really is about stories. But um, I was really interested in the idea of shame, and I, I, was, I knew I knew that I knew that I wanted my main character to be shamed and sort of ousted from whatever position she was in right at the beginning of the novel. Don't ask me why. I really, really don't really know why. Um, and I thought, we're thinking a lot about consequences, and I thought, what's the worst and most ultimate consequence that a story that you write could have? Because I've thought about that a lot in my journalistic career, like the ethical tension between writing good, objective, you know, fact-based journalism, and then the moral murkiness of that story maybe destroying an individual life, even though the mm. public interest is in it is huge, right? So I thought that was an interesting tension and I thought it would be really cool to, to explore that novelistically. Um, yeah. Have you written about those issues in your journalism? No, no. And I, I don't even... It's not like I sit there and sort of ponder them either because you just do, you know, what it's like. You just focus so much on the next story. You don't actually think back very much mm. and you don't actually think about the people that you're writing about 
all the time, very much, unless you're writing about victims, in which case I do. Mm-hmm. But um, so no, it was just it's just something I guess it's like I, that I've observed and thought about um, at a distance my entire journalistic career. Yeah, consequences, consequences. What are the consequences of what we write? You've both come to writing fiction from long careers. Um, in other forms of writing. And uh, let me stick with you for a minute, Jacqueline. Um, Why was this the story that made you want to put it into fictional form? I I know you've written a bit of fiction before, even a novel that you didn't publish. Yes, I did. (laughs) So why why did this one come together as a novel for you? Um, I think, uh, like, I thought it had a good premise and I... um, wanted to write about motherhood really badly. Like, I, I, I mean, I guess there's a few ways, ways to answer that, but I was mothering a small child at the time as a sole parent, and I had always read so much fiction. I've always been such a kind of fiction um, head, and I would go to books, you know, to escape or to, like, to have a bit of a break from the difficulties of motherhood and I would go to these books and I'd be like none of them describe you know fiction is supposed to have all of life in it but I didn't find many Mm. that had really good descriptions of the minutiae of mothering and the drudgery of it the joy but the difficulty all of it thrown together and done really well and particularly not soul parenting and so I was like we this is such an important subject it's not even important like in a social issues kind of dreary way it's like it's so full of it's such juicy material Mm. man for a novelist because I think it's often that motherhood has often been seen as sort of soft and domestic yeah. and small no. as opposed to important topics. Yeah. When it's absolutely at the centre of the human situation and worthy of being considered an important topic right. and you kind yeah. of did it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And it's, it's got big emotions in it, like from the child and from the mother, like huge emotions that spill out all over the place. And also it's the most important relationship, you know, the mother-child relationship really in everyone's lives. And I'm like, why has everyone ever written much about mm. this? So I wanted to write about that. I might just interrupt and say the Herald Review of Jacqueline's book said she has written the best book about single motherhood since Helen Garner. So there you are. <laughs> Paraphrasing. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> um, Deborah, you have talked about your abusive relationship with the theatre, and in fact, that's part. Partly... Sorry, that, the beginning of that sentence might have set people off on the wrong <laughs> on the wrong mental track. Richard Glover is in the audience. <laughs> right. and Richard Glover in the second. You round. may know that Deborah's treats partner. Me very, he treats me very nice. <laughs> He's a good bloke. He's a good bloke. No, you have wonderful relationships with your husband and sons. Yes, your partner and sons. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> But your abusive relationship has been with the theatre, as you as you demonstrated very fully, yes. uh, with, the, with the great success, but also the disappointments you've had in theatre. And I just wondered, is that why you turned to writing novels? Uh, no, because um, I, I wrote my first children's book when I was 28. So, um, so no, I've always written fiction and television and theatre. Although, yes, actually, now I'm being disingenuous. It is true that I probably took to writing adult novels when I finally turned my back on the theatre. And I suppose it's because, for all its... um, the, the fun and the satisfactions of television, you know, having a big audience and working with clever people, you don't have control. And I like the idea that, you know, with a story like this, I was so seized by it, I wanted to tell the story the way I thought it should be told without, any, without it being answerable to anybody. And, and if you were developing it for television, you would be, you know, you would be answerable to commissioners and script editors and producers. But as a novel, I can just have a crack 
see, will this idea work? I'm going to try. And, and so that's taken the place of theatre in terms of the, the creative satisfaction of that. Yeah. I can see your background in writing scripts in the novel because it's really tightly plotted and fast-paced. There's a lot of action and movement and, um, you know, it's quite concentrated and, and, and full of tension. Um, and I, I want to ask you both about what you learnt from your earlier work and other forms of writing that you brought to the novel and what you had to unlearn. All <laughs> oh, right. Because there are some real difficulties, I think. I've tried to write fiction. It's bloody hard when you've been a journalist all your life. Yeah, well, I, think, I think the fast pacing is probably a function of low self-esteem, that I'm, I'm always so worried that people are going to be bored that I'm just <laughs> keep it moving. Um, um, look, when you write novels, you've got toys to play with that you don't have with screen. Like, you can just tell people what somebody's thinking. Mm. Hello, how easy is that? Um, um, one of the things that I did with this that it's hard to do on screen is there's shifting points of view. So sometimes we're in Paula's head and sometimes we're in her friend Anita's head. And I love the way fiction can play with that because mm. the truth is often in the gaps and, in, and, and, the, and the sort of assumptions people make and the, and, the, and the mistakes they make about what's going on. So fiction does that very well. So that felt like a sort of toy I could play with. Um, what did I have to unlearn? I have to learn to sit still sometimes and just not move quickly all the time. Um, that's probably one thing. So I still obviously still move quickly, but slower than I would if it was a script. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, m I mostly revel in the things I'm allowed to do in a novel. Mm. And then you have to pitch it differently from children's books. So that's another shift but yeah, maybe that's I guess, very natural look, you know what I, I because I've jumped around between all those between kids and adults and all those different media the similarities are much more I mean a story that makes sense characters that you care about finding the right word that's going to land in somebody's head the right way that's the same whether it's a dialogue piece of dialogue in a script or a piece of prose the difference is the characters say exactly what I want them to say they don't say my character wouldn't say that line they say exactly what I want them to say. Um, um, so I, I think, I, I know this sounds, this may sound really mm. sort of wet, but actually the similarities are much mm. more clear to me. Mm. And how about for you? What, what was useful from your journalism background when you came to writing fiction? Um, no, the only thing, well, it was, it's not a small thing, but the discipline of journalism was of great um, help in getting it done. And I, you're used to bashing out prose and it wasn't a big deal for me to sit down. You know, if I had a, a moment of time, I knew I could get stuff on the page, which of course is half the battle when you're writing a book. So the discipline element. Um, also, I think, you know, I, a lifetime of reading, like not just novels, but also um, reading a lot of, um, you know, like non-fiction in the, in the form of newspaper journalism, all fed into the ideas of the book. But mostly I think it was, I had to do a lot of unlearning. So I had to unburden myself from, you know, fidelity to the facts and like let my imagination roam as much as I could. Um, and like, like, it was like loosening a corset. Like, like uh, mm. Catherine Milne, my publisher, who's here somewhere and is a 
lovely, wonderful woman, um, you know, she read an early kind of version and she was like, just just chill out, man. Like, she, she wouldn't have used those words. She would have said something much more um, elegant in, her, in its phrasing. But um, she was basically like, just, just relax. You don't actually have to get to anything very quickly because you're writing a novel, like, there's 100,000 words of it. So I was like, oh, okay. So you loosen up a bit. You're just like, you know, I can do... And the other thing that's weird about, like, learning to write fiction is I was like, I was like how do people get their characters to move like I and I'd go back to like books that I like and I'd be like where's the person like how does how do they get the character moving through time and space and I just had to be really mechanical about that learn that teach myself mm. like you actually have Susie walking quite a lot yeah, don't you yeah well, that was deliberate because I just Sydney. I couldn't do that at the time mm. and myself so I was like I'm just gonna roam in my imagination through this character and she walks a very unrealistic amount for any single parent <laughs> you know you know the amount of like um sort of uh, sex she has. Very unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not taken from life, I might add. <laughs> we might come back to that. But also your writing in, in the novel is very beautiful and descriptive of t at times of the, the Sydney summer and the fig trees and the it's and you you bring quite a poetic quality to your writing and also humour, which we'll come back to too. Was that a was that a great relief to let that out, yeah, or was it hard yeah. to achieve that different style of writing? Um, I wanted it to be very atmospheric. I wanted mm. the novel to have a real atmosphere, and I wanted it to be very, very grounded in this sort of patch of Sydney, um, which I just sort of, I've never lived there or anything, but I actually fell in love with it because I used to go there with my daughter, and I would just sit in this park, like I think it's Jubilee Park at the bottom of Glebe, and I just had some moments of real peace and repose in that place. I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And it was, it became really special. Mm. I feel that. I mean, it's, you, I think even if the readers haven't been to Glebe and walked through those beautiful streets and parks, I, I think we all feel it. And I applied it to my part of Sydney, which has had the same effect on me through difficult times. So, you know, it's a real yeah, gift it to was, readers. It, yeah. it, I wanted it to have a sense of place and, and I wanted it to have this kind of heightened, teddy atmosphere. Well, that's going to make me cry even more. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. <laughs> what if that was a terrible thing to do? Sorry. <laughs> it's the worst response right now. No, it's um, perfect. It's wonderful. <laughs> we love um, emotion. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wanted it to be atmospheric and that sort of built into the tension of the novel because I wanted the novel to be tense in parts as well. Yeah, which it is. Yeah. Very yeah. tense. Let's Good. not let's not get carried away with lyricism here. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's quite tense. Um, look, well, let's start then next with the, um, the big issues that are sort of at the heart of the novels. Your book is... It's about many things, but right up front, it's about domestic violence. And I wondered, um, look, I'm crying too now. I know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's like sneezing or yawning or something. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I just wondered, um, I mean, you, you give it a very real and visceral um, experience to the reader. You give a very real and visceral experience to the reader. It's quite violent at in a couple of places and uh, we sort of understand what's going on from the woman's point of view. How did you achieve that, Deborah? How did you research it and, and create that on the page? Well, I wouldn't claim to have any special wisdom about it. I mean, you know, everyone should read Jess Hill's non-fiction book, See What You Made Me Do. Yeah. Fiction is about something else. Fiction is about taking the statistics and the kind of patterns of behaviour that you can read about 
that any of us can read about in non-fiction and embedding it in the flesh of particular characters so that a reader will connect with it, hopefully, in a more visceral way. So I did lots of reading. I talked to doctors and lawyers and um, a friend who's a former coroner. And it was very important to me. There were certain things I, didn't, I wanted the book not to be. Mm. I didn't want it to be exploitative or titillating. You know, I think there's a lot of thrillers about, you know, women's bodies on mm. autopsy slabs and young women held naked in basements. I just so didn't no. want that. So I needed enough of the, the sort of violence to for everyone to get it, but we all get it because we all read about it all the time. Um, so, but I didn't want it to be titillating and I didn't want there to be any sort of puzzle about who killed what, who and who, because I think that can potentially be exploitative. It was so important to me that I not be exploitative about this stuff. And the other thing was that I didn't want to write from the position of a victim because I'm not one and I wasn't sure that I would know how to write about that in an appropriate way. So I wrote about it from the position that I'm in, which is the anguished observer. So the two main characters are the best friends of the woman who's been murdered at the beginning, and then later Anita um, covers a, a big murder trial and gets very close, feels very close to all the people involved. So my characters were always the position that many of us are in, which is we're watching these stories and feeling heartbroken and furious and, and, and desperate to try and find a solution. So I think... Positioning myself in that story was part of making it work for me. Mm. Did you come to understand the problem more than when you set out? I mean, do you, do you think we are in an epidemic of domestic violence or is it just that we're more aware of it? I really don't know. And, mm. I, and again, I'm not, no. I wouldn't be an expert on it. But I, look, I remember even as a kid, there being lots of stories. We all probably can think of stories from our childhoods and families we knew. Then again, I wonder whether there's not a lot of situations where men are feeling entitled and outraged and denied something, so possibly there is more. I don't know. Um, I think that the, the pattern has always been there. I mean, you know, when you're as old as I am, you know, we've been all... Misogyny has been soaked into so many... I mean, in much more low-key ways than, than domestic murder, but misogyny has been soaked into everything we've been dealing with all our lives to the extent that to get on with things we just have to sometimes ignore it and then occasionally you just think I'm drowning in it so it was ever thus I think um and now people are starting to say maybe this is not such a good thing yeah um you you tell the story very much from the women's point of view um yes the men are kind of in the background we understand their insecurities and their jealousies and their problems but you don't try to sort of excuse any of the behaviour at all and so, you know... Um, do, look, do I think, you... look, I think that's a different book. Like, I, yeah. think, I think a book... I mean, in fact, I have Anita saying she doesn't... She's not interested yeah. in, the, in the psychology of the man. Like, she's... Because that's another book. Um, I hasten to add, I, I like men. I've chosen to live with one for 40 years and I've given birth to two of them. Um, and there are good men in the book, you know, like, like th there's a love story in the book, believe it or not. It might not sound like it. Um, there's a love story in there the book is, and it's yeah. really important to me that there be, that the book include the possibility of a tender, respectful and very mm. sexy relationship with a very attractive man. Um, I fell in love with him a little bit. I was look, like, oh, he's a nice, I, he's a nice boyfriend. Have been, have been, yeah. um, I've had it described to me that people have been thirsty for him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an expression I was unfamiliar with. Um, 
And there's other good men in the book too, you know, yeah. there's, there's caring good friends, like the, the, the big murder trial sequence in the middle. Um, one of my favourite characters in it is a, is a young man who's the best friend of the woman who's been killed oh, yeah, in the trial good. and he comes every... So I'm now I'm going to cry. And he comes... It's funny, isn't it? Like, we still care about these characters. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you can see it's an all-female session, the tissues are... Um, 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 you know that he comes every day to sort of bear witness to the to the to his friend who's been dead and the woman that she was, and the life she should have lived. So there are good men in the book as well, but I'm my focus was on the women who were worried about other women and children and the desperation and and the sort of extreme acts that they might feel pushed towards. That was the sort mm. of that was the mission I set out to to go on. Mm. Okay. Jacqueline, you have domestic violence sort of in the background of yeah. your story. Uh, do you want to add anything about that? I mean, it's interesting because I, I didn't even really think about it very much until people have brought it up because it wasn't... I didn't try to write about domestic violence at all, like in, this, in the way that Deb has. I, it just served the character. It just seemed to like something that would have happened to her in her backstory because it's happened to so many women. And it just, um, it just fit. And... Um, I was interested, I haven't, I didn't write a lot about the depictions of it, but I was interested not so much about the end result, like the violence that happens at the end, but what it was, what it's like for a woman to be in that relationship on a day-to-day basis, to have this male, you know, hostile male presence who can blow at any time, who's very controlling, um, and who you almost provoke into giving you the reaction because you can't stand the male silence. And... Tony Birch, who is one of my favourite authors, writes so beautifully. He writes sort of about domestic violence because it's just, again, it serves the people, the characters that he's depicting. Um, And he writes about male silence so beautifully and just these sort of hulking, Mm. you know, atomic presences that are in the house who are not talking and how awful that can be. Um, And that was what I wanted to depict, I suppose. Well, the the issue in the forefront of your book is really about um, social media, media responsibility, um, you know. um, There's a lot of interwoven aspects of those those issues, but um, uh, what what about the responsibility of the journalist, which is what you face every day, telling stories that expose people and then having to deal with the consequences. Is that something you've experienced personally, you know, in a tough way? Um, I'm trying to think. I, like, well... Goodness knows, you get a lot of like, you get a lot of, I get a lot of emails, a lot of them really, really nice. Like I would say 80 to 90% nice, but I've got to say there is a certain type of male reader who just will, will be like, eh, I always read your column and here's what you did wrong today. Like I got one today, <laughs> like I'll get one every Sunday. Sometimes I get heaps and I actually did something like this. This the, Normally I ignore, if, if people write to me nicely, I always write back. If they don't write nicely, I don't, I don't give them the, the, a response. But one of these guys who went on and on and on recently, I just wrote back and I said, you might be interested in this link. I sent a link to the Wikipedia page for mansplaining. And then I just wrote, <laughs> yours sincerely, Jacqueline. <laughs> and I just was like, yes, that was the best burn ever. I was so proud of myself. Um, 
Anyway, what was the, what, what, we were talking about tro- like social media and the consequences. I, yeah. you, like sometimes you get trolled on social media or you get nasty things on social media. That hasn't happened to me a lot, but I've seen it happen a lot to other people, mm. particularly other women. And I can see like the self-censoring and the, like, the mental health kind of effects of that can be awful. Um, but, I, but I think it's, a, yeah, the self-censoring I think is, is the main effect that you have as a journalist because you're always second-guessing yourself. Yeah. Is someone going to have a shot at me on Twitter? Is this, you know, this going to be perceived badly by social media? media could it be taken out of context and retweeted 20 gazillion times to the detriment of my reputation so you have to think about those things Mm. yeah but what about the other side of responsibility your responsibility towards your subjects i think i mean we can ruin lives so easily can't we lives and reputations yeah yeah and um Absolutely. And I think that's such an important and interesting ethical tension and one that as a journalist, you have to put right at the back of your mind and you just have to, you know. So if you're writing something that's in the public interest that you think is really important to write, you just have to sort of put it aside. Mm. But when it's more grey, like when it's not a really terrible perpetrator or something, yeah, it's really like even, I mean, I'm such a softie, like I just feel really bad making any kind of ad hominem attack, even of politicians, because you think, oh, you know, they've got a family and like, you know, probably their kids love them. I don't know, like you mm. do feel bad. Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> In some cases, I wonder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not, I'm not particularly hard-assed in that way, actually, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you use what appears to be the Bill Gibson story yes. as the kind yeah. of reference point. For, do you want to explain just yeah, what so that the, story is and how you how you adapted yeah, it? Yeah, well, I don't know when when that sprang into my head, but I was really interested. I'm always fascinated, actually, by frauds and like people who, um, you know. Um, defraud other people or, or pathological liars like Belle Gibson, who you probably all know is the. It's, she's my character in the book is loosely based on her, um, but she was a you know a, I think a blogger and she claimed to have cured herself of cancer and through her diet and then she wrote a cookbook which was all about clean living and then it all unravelled um, and she was actually put on trial because I think she was embezzling money I can't even remember as soon as I knew that I wanted to do that kind of thing I actually did not read I purposely didn't read much about her because I didn't want it to be based on her mm. I just wanted to like have that as a kicking off point for my own character um, but what I was interested in I, I was interested in her because I'm always fascinated like do these people believe their own lies and of course they must and then for me that was an interesting point because I think we all lie to ourselves and we all believe our own lives and we sort of have to and we have to tell stories to ourselves to make sense of our own lives and to make us feel better about our own lives and so it's like she's done it on on a gross scale but Susie's doing it as well yeah. Like in all sorts of ways. Um, and I was interested in that mirroring kind of thing. Yeah. In fact, you say in the book or someone says, all writing is lying. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's, I, that's really the layering of the story, isn't it? And the yeah. sort of peeling back of the, the lies. Yeah. 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 I wanted it to be about stories, lies, um, the, the manipulation of truth and how some people do that in a really terrible and extreme way, but we all do it. We're all, we're all guilty of it. Hmm. Um, I thought it was rather quaint that you both have a newspaper journalist as one of your <laughs> as your main characters. You have they're Anita. very interesting people. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Tell me, tell me what's useful about a newspaper journalist in this day and age? Um, you know, when you well, why didn't you write about a radio journalist or a newspaper, a, a, a television oh, far journalist? Less because far I less wanted to write about somebody who would be in a courtroom 
I mean, to me, the idea that you would follow a murder trial and get to watch everybody and, and you often know more about what's going on than any, any one of the participants mm. and that you would feel incredibly caught up in the narrative of that, that was, it was a way for me to have another character who's thrown right up to the hard edge of, of the crisis without being a victim of it. So, so in the way that Paula is dealing, the doctor is dealing with patients walking in who are clearly under threat, Anita is in court day after day, or not day after day, but, you know, trial after trial, seeing women after it's too late in trouble. And um, so it was just a way to kind of push someone up against the, um, the world of it. Yeah, yeah, it works very mm. well, very well. And um, you were drawing on your own experience, of course, and then you had to separate Susie from yourself in some ways. How did you yeah. deal with that? Yeah, well, that was hard because um, I started to feel... Because there is, like, particularly with the mothering aspects of um, Susie, like, that's very much based on me and my daughter. The rest of what Susie does, not at all, um, and what happens to her. But um, so when... Particularly when I was doing having Susie do stuff that I found I would find ethically or morally... Um, not okay, um, like, you know, like sleeping with other people's husbands and stuff, I was sort of like, I felt really torn because it's like someone, I don't know, it's like your best friend or someone who you sort of got a real fidelity to is doing something really terrible. So, and I had to be like, you, you know, it's not you doing this stuff, it's her and like, it's okay, you can make her do the most disgraceful things. You know, that was sort of the, un, the unhooking of fiction that I had to get on that groove. Yeah. And in many ways, the other characters became a salvation because, you know, I could, I could write them from a very different perspective and I had a less complex relationship with them. So Jan, the mother in the book, um, is, ended up being probably my favourite character. And then Susie's mum, who's like a real petty snob um, and, you know, sort of petty bourgeois. I loved it. I ended up loved her, um, her as well. And I should mention at this point, a few people have been like, how does your mother feel about the novel? And I'm like, my mum who's in the audience is like nothing like the mum in the book. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Nothing even remotely. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you create characters. You know, you start with these big ideas and issues and then you have to portray them and express them through, as you've both done, beautifully distinctive, rounded characters. Let's just stick with, with you, Jacqueline, and um, maybe talk about Jan, who did largely come out of your imagination. Yeah. Would you like to talk a little bit about her and... What details make you think, ah, oh, yes, I've, I've really nailed Jan as a person? Yeah, well, Jan, um, it's funny because Jan is a very specific character and I hope a very lifelike and lovable character because I loved her. But she, I also was trying to write about a type of woman and that's sort of what Jan comes to personify to Susie who um, is in late middle age and... Just um, to remind people that she's the mother of the woman who's killed who's herself. Killed yep. herself and she comes to have a relationship with the, with the protagonist journalist. Um, yeah, so she's, a, she's, she's in late middle age, she's a bit overweight, um, she lives in a regional part of Australia. Um, there's a bit of a class difference between Susie and Jan um, and... She's the kind of woman who has worked her whole life, never received much thanks for it. She's, you know, been devoted to her children. They've come and they've not particularly turned out very well. Um, and she's a bit estranged from her daughter. And, um, but her work powers communities. And, you know, if, if we didn't have Jan, the Jans of the world in Australia, then Australia would basically, you know, the social fabric would fall apart. But nobody cares about her. And um, nobody notices her. And I wanted her to, like storm into the middle of this novel and demand to be seen and accounted, accounted to and, like, have her as this sort of unlikely 
angel of, I mean, agent of revenge or something. Um, but in terms of making her specific... Um, yeah, how do you take her yeah, beyond that kind of I wanted, archetype? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted her... Um, I wanted... I thought a lot about how she would talk. I gave her... Specifically gave her quite a generic name. Um, I thought a lot about what she would wear, the kinds of things she would wear, where, where she would shop. And also, like, she's got a bit of a battle with her weight. Like, she's got a really... Um, She's got a really sort of dysfunctional relationship with food and I think that is something that a lot of women can probably relate to. Um, you know, she's a real yo-yo dieter and stuff, so I put a bit about that in there. Um, and then I suppose a lot of... And her backstory, you know, I had to think about that. That's where the sort of domestic violence stuff comes in and also how she feels in her innermost skin about her daughter, you know, that she's lost. So I had to think about her grief a lot. One of the things I really loved about Jan was the way, on the one hand, there were there was a naivety and, and sort of pockets of lack of education, and then she'd be so clever yeah. and incisive. Why? Other but that's, that's, what I, that's what I sort of wanted to do about the kind of woman that everybody underestimates, and it's actually like mm. she's the wise... You talk to her for a while, she's got so much wisdom. You know, she will sort, she, she's lived through so much, and she, she's actually thought about things in, on a really deep, deep level. Um, yeah, so I'm, 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 yeah. Mm. And also the thing about Jan is she's, and I know maybe one or two people like this in my life, it's actually very rare quality. She's, she has no judgment for other people. She does not judge other people at all, even to herself from privately. She just, she's just not built that way. And Susie needs that. She doesn't have any of that. Susie's a very judgmental person of herself and other people. Mm. Okay. Deborah, do, do you want to talk about one of your characters well, in I, that sort of detail about how I th you I think, built I them think, up? I think I'd probably rather talk about the fact that the book is partly about female friendship. Mm. And so yeah. Paula yeah. and Anita are long-time friends since they were 12. And, and I was interested in um, the strength of that and the love and the, and the deep knowledge of each other, which becomes really important in the yeah. plot towards the end. But also about the, the frustrations when you've been long, in a long-term friendship with, 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 particularly between two women, where you get cast in certain roles, you know, you're the sensible one, you're the impulsive one, and, and how that can express the truth about somebody, but also it can be a distortion and, and there can be parts of you that feel frustrated and limited by that. So that was, um, that was something I really enjoyed. So, and because of the shifting points of view, we're sometimes in Anita's head and, and, and she's looking at Paula and making judgments about Paula's behaviour and then than the reverse. And, and that, was, that was something I really enjoyed playing with in it. I, I, I loved the depiction of female friendship. That's yeah. sort of why I kept, like, you know, I really wanted to go back to the book because it, there was something about it that made me feel really safe and, like, it was just very familiar. It's like, oh, right. I'm going back into yes. the arms of some friends and it's nice and I like being in this place. It's really even the if central, even it's if the there central are relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah bad right. men around. Um, yeah. It's the central relationship of the novel. Yeah. Even though I put them under a lot of pressure. Mm. And also for me, because I come from a drama background, I like, I have to hear the characters talking to each other. Mm. You know, when I, I remember there was a play of mine years ago called Skate that was, had a whole lot of success. 16-year-old skateboarders in it. So I had to write, and I thought they'll all sound the same. So I, I, mm. this will sound a bit mental, but I, I took each character and I interviewed them. I asked them questions and they answered me in the first person so I could differentiate them from each other as if I'd interviewed and you met real... You wrote this down. I wrote it down yeah. like a crazy person. And, and then it was as if I'd interviewed these six characters, all 16-year-old boys in Vaniloquin. What did you ask them? I asked them things to do with the story. So tell me about the skate park. How yeah. do you feel about Corey's death? So I asked yeah. them, but they would each answer me in a slightly different 
way because they're different people, as any two 16-year-old boys are all different from each other. So, and it's partly about I start to have the tape of that character running in my head. So then when I throw them into a certain scene, it's almost like improv. I can, when it's working, when the system is working, it doesn't always, I can, I can throw a line at them from another character or an event and hear how they'll react to, to it. That, I've, making characters interact with each other is a good way of working out your characters, actually. Yes. It's like, what would this person say if, this, if they met this person? person yes. And how would they uh, respond to them, like non-verbally and verbally? That's, yeah. I found that, yeah. Mm. Um, I just wanted to ask you what it is with doctors. Obviously, you have a sister who's a doctor, <laughs> but of course, um, you wrote Offspring, all about an obstetrician, yes, played yeah. by Asha Ketty. And, uh, you know, your main protagonist in the family doctor is a suburban GP. And I linked that up with your, your wonderful one-woman show in which you revealed that you were a hypochondriac as a child <laughs> and possibly champion. still are. A junior champion hypochondriac. That's right. <laughs> Get exactly. it right. Yes. So what role does this doctor character play for you in your um, imagination? Uh, and, and also Useful, my novel Useful, is about somebody yes, who, donates, giving who, who does a, an yeah. altruistic kidney donation. So I love a bit of medicine. Um, um, my, Are you playing my, out your anxiety? <laughs> no, because I'm over those. Thank you, Susan. Um, um, it's, it's, um, I suppose I think the human body is so interesting and, and, and so dangerous and so gorgeous and all sorts of things about the human condition are played out in our bodies about... I mean, the, the, the opening page is about that the human body is this delicate parcel mm. of, of blood and, and tissue held together by bones and skin and it can be hurt mm. so easily and we hurt it ourselves so easily and Paula's job as a doctor is to keep people safe. Um, so that, that was really important to me. I just think there's natural drama in it. Yeah. I mean, maybe because, you know, I have a very blessedly, you know, safe life that the danger that the body will betray you is, is one of the dangers that I have and that we all have. So if I'm talking about fear and courage and how we get through life, medical dramas is one of the ways to do it, isn't it? Yeah. And, and babies being born is, you know, a bit fabulous. So, of course, you know, offspring, yes. was, an answer, well, offspring was an answer to all those women's bodies on autopsy slabs. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Also, in principle at least, a doctor is a very ethical person. Yes. So you can so, bounce all well, those well, questions off. And, in, and, in, and Paula, that's right, thank you for reminding me. So one of the big <laughs> things for Paula is that, I don't know if many of you know many doctors, my sister's a GP, there's a kind of, <laughs> there's a kind of mindset which is that it's my job to fix people mm. and I will hear the problems and I, I won't necessarily have a 100% perfect solution but I will come up with a solution for you. So that sense of responsibility, which is wonderful and beautiful, can also carry with it other habits of mind which can be dangerous. So that you don't let yourself other people fix you, you fix other people, you don't accept help. And also this idea that you will make the best choice for somebody. Might not be 100% perfect but you will make a choice. And so when Paula is put under the enormous pressure of the trauma of seeing her friend and the children murdered, if you couple that with the habit of mind, which is that it's my job to fix things and I will find the best solution, it can lead her down, um, you know, well, I was going to say dangerous path, a path that may please many of the readers, <laughs> um, but an extreme path. And yeah. I think that, that doctor habit of mind, that kind of, it can 
slightly be condescending that everyone's a bit of a silly duffer, mm. um, you know, at its worst. Um, and at best, it's incredibly caring and a sense of responsibility for other people's safety, mm. which is a very beautiful thing as well. Mm. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you both about um, humour. Mm. You're a very funny writer and you used, you know, you often use mm. humour or comedy even in quite dramatic, serious situations. In this book, I felt there's a lot of wit, not so much funniness. No, and I just, it's not a laugh, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I just, I just wondered, I didn't feel it would be... Look, it's weird. It's, the least, it's, the, least, it's the least voice. funny thing I've ever written. It's kind of a bit, <laughs> bit freaky Friday. Um, um, I mean, there's humour in it. I mean, the women... The, yeah, you know, they joke in, among any, themselves. Any two, and, any two yeah. women friends are going to crack some funnies. But... Um, and, and, and I hope, and I'm glad, thank you for saying there's wit in it, but it was weird for me not to have humour in there because I, one of the things I love about the fiction that I love best is that it's got all of life in it, you know, that it's got, you know, like in Jacqueline's book, there's humour and there's danger and there's people behaving badly and, you know, that's, that's real life and, and books that are sort of one thing or the other aren't true mm. about life. I suppose this was about as far down the kind of serious end as you could go um, because did you I, have to, I kind of had to. Did you have to make yourself be serious, or did is that just the natural way that? It no, the subject matter was pretty out. was pretty yeah. um, pretty pretty much pushed me that way. The the thing I the thing I was conscious of was wanting to give readers because humour is often a release after tension, and so in this book that wasn't necessary, that wasn't possible. But there were moments of um, satisfaction, like a little fantasy moment of imagining killing someone terrible that would be a little moment of release. Um, one of the bits in the book that makes me cry even now is where, you know how when it's, someone is kind, it's the moment that sets mm. you off, yep. you know? Mm. So there's a moment where the gorgeous friend of the, of, the, of the victim in the murder trial ends up hugging the journalist in the street. Mm. And that bit always makes me cry. And, and so yeah. kindness in the book is the thing that would undo me. Right. Um, but unfortunately, I had to restrain my gags. Was it, was it hard to write? I mean, for both of you, these are pretty intense writing experiences. Did it, it was really did it hard take sometimes. a toll on yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were Because I tend to be fairly immersive and kind of um, a method writer, so I'll wind myself up into the mental state of the character and march mm. up and down the hall shouting or crying or whatever. And um, my dog is a very confused animal. Um, <laughs> um, and, You're a talking and, dog. And, talking <laughs> dog. And, uh, and so this was, yeah, this was hard sometimes. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Mm. But you're okay. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm fine. Like, like if these characters aren't all fine. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very intense. how attached you get to them. Yeah. Um, what about your voice in this book? It's, it, to me, it almost seems like you talking, because you have a naturally mm. light touch and a great sense of humour too. Mm. And um, I just wondered if that just felt right for the book or did you I mean, choose a you, voice? I a think you have to work on tone a little bit and mm. I, I did want it to be um, a mixture of things. I wanted it to have tender sort of sad moments and very emotionally real moments but also I wanted it to have a lot of humour. So I didn't want it to be um, like look like I was trying to make people laugh, <laughs> like if you know what I mean, but yeah. I did want it to make people laugh a bit. Yeah. For a few reasons, partly because it served the character, because she does have a sardonic view on life, you and know. And quite self-deprecating, yeah, yeah. isn't she's, she? She's yeah. self-deprecating, she's a bit sarcastic, maybe a bit too sarcastic at times. Um, so it served the character, but also um, 
I, well, I, I like reading books that are a bit funny. Like, mm. I, wanna, I always want to read literary fiction, but if it's got some gags in it, I'm like, thank you. You know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be grim all the time, um, even if the subject matter is grim. And then, um, particularly in my depiction of motherhood, I wanted to show people or just, like, talk about how funny it is. Like, it's funny to spend your days with a small, strange little chum um, who is always, like, mangling language but also using it in really crazy ways and who's, like, bumping into stuff. It's coming out with really truthful things at very inappropriate moments. Um, yeah, I just wanted to put all that in there and how much you laugh when you're with a small child. Mm. Um, and that's so much of the joy of it that they make you see how funny the world is. So that was a big, that was a big part of the, the humour that I put into the book, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, look, if, if anyone has a question, please come down. Um, thank you very much, both of you, and thank you, Susan. It was most interesting. Um, I know I've listened to writers who say that in their sleep or in the street, the character comes and grabs them by the scarf, by the <laughs> shoulder, and makes them write this book. Now, obviously, each of you have written something. It's not so much the character becomes the character, but each of you have written something which the subject matter has really grabbed at you. And I wondered whether you had to make your characters fit your subject matter instead of vice versa. Yeah, right. That's a really good question. Um, I've never, I didn't think about it very much. I mean, I, I definitely had the main character in my mind, um, and I knew sort of who she was and I knew what had happened to her and I suppose the events of the novel, the consequences of the, um, the what-ifs of the novel sort of came from, from the central character. Um, and then once you've got your central character, you start, you start thinking about who's relating to her in her life so I needed to give her people. And I suppose that's in... You know, you, you, particularly if my character's quite like my main character's quite spiky, and in many ways she's quite unlikable. Um, and she doesn't have many female friends, which I never think is a very good sign in a person. Um, and you know, she's not so likable. So there were I, some of the characters in my book served to soften her, um, and I think there's two relationships in the book that give that soften her: her relationship with her daughter, and also her relationship with her great uncle, who's a much much older person. Um, so yeah, in a way, I suppose they're all they're, she's she's a central planet, and they're all orbiting around her. I guess. What do you think? The central premise is a doctor who has a moment when she can do something with a syringe or not. Um, I wanted to create a doctor of a certain kind of sober, caring, cautious mindset. And then because I wanted to give her two friends, I then tried to construct a set of, a trio of friends who I would believe, but who were all distinct people. So, um, I don't know, it's very hard for me to talk about character because that's to me the easy part. Mm. That's the part. And so then as you're building up the world of the book, you know, because I had I have several different cases that, that come up in the story, I needed to make them distinct from each other, but plausible. And so, and, and, and coming at the angle, at the, at the situation from a slightly different angle. So once you do that and you start clothing those cases in, in real circumstances, people grow. People grow. It's a bit like Magic Crystal Garden. You know that thing where you put the cardboard in and the, yeah. <laughs> my, my publisher said to me, um, again, I, I was like, because I didn't exactly know how the plot was going to pan out. And because I w was a journalist by background, I didn't really know how to do a plot. Like, I was like, oh man, like how much plot? I don't want it to be too plot heavy, but I need something. Um, like the structure around which I, you know, put the clothes. And my, my publisher said to me, your characters, like she was like, you know, sounds a bit whatever, but your characters will tell you what's going to happen. Like, if you just put them, put all your energy into them, they'll sort of show you the way. And um, it was true. They did. They showed me how it was going to end. 
which sounds like really... Um, Did you have to make a lot of decisions about where the mm. plot was going? Or? Yeah, like I got about two-thirds, maybe, I don't know, half or two-thirds of the way through the book and I had a few few different ways it could pan out and then it just sort of slotted into place. I think it's that thing, if it's something's in your subconscious for a long time, it just, the answer will come to you. So, um, yeah, and, I, and also I think you can overthink these things. I was like, there's no such thing as a perfect plot. Um, you know, I, it doesn't, I don't want it tied up in a bow at the end. Um, don't overthink it. Just do it. Work, focus on everything else. I don't read books for their plot, um, but I want you know, you need a story that's going to pull yeah. you through. Like, you need to care about the characters. That's the main thing that'll, that will get you to the end of a book. You want to know what happens to the characters. I love plot. Mm. I love, I love good the way plot. plot can have its own eloquence. Mm. You know, a moment can turn on whether somebody is going to go through that door or not go through that door and all the sort of events that have led up to that moment and then the consequences from it. I, it was very important to me that this book have a forward momentum, that it's not about solving a puzzle from the past. It's all about I put a character in, under, in either danger or moral dilemma, they make a choice and then you think, oh, God, what's going to happen next? Um, so I... And, and because of, cause it's a thriller, and because I felt I was walking a very fine moral line, um, I want it to be satisfying and, and sort of intense, but not morally irresponsible. Mm. I had to plot it very carefully, much more carefully than I would some of my other books. So I, I do file cards on the table with beats of the plot, and I lay it all out on my dining room table so I can see the whole story. And, uh, and I had to be very careful about how I did it because mm -hmm. otherwise it could... Well, I mean, and there are people who do believe I've been morally responsible with this book, but judge for yourselves. You'll have to buy it. <laughs> um, 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 the, so I had to be very careful with the plot and, and because it involves a whole lot of threads coming together in a big action sequence at the end, that stuff's quite mechanical and technical and you just have to make it look like it's not. As long as every moment... It's really important to me. I really hate it. Richard will say that I annoy him when we watch television because if somebody does something for the, for the convenience of the plot that's not based on real emotional, it yeah. really annoys me because I think it's actually not hard to do a bit more work and make the, re the person go through that door because they absolutely have to. And even if we think, don't go through the door, we understand yeah. why they are. Don't pick up that gun. Well, we know why she is. But that stuff, there's a lot of work behind the scenes to make it look like it's just a barrelling momentum yeah. that you can't stop. It's the only thing they could do. Yeah, yeah. right. I need to um, sign up for a Deb Oswald <laughs> plot, how to plot um, it's all in the It's all stationary. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do an excursion Can to we? office work. Can we? Yeah. We'll do a field yeah, yeah. trip. We'll yeah. do it. Yeah, great. Just you and me. Great. And do you eat dinner on your lap now? You don't eat at the dining table? <laughs> it's got all these cards. No, 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 because the laying out of the cards... And oh. the reeling in of the cards is part see. of the ritual. I see. It's Every quite, day. It's quite okay. hard to keep a story that big in your head, I found. Yeah. So you do need something. It's like you have a visual visual. Because then otherwise you get lost in that. Once you've got, you know, tens of thousands of words yeah, yeah. on the screen, You're like, you get what's lost happened? in... What's yeah. happened? What's that character doing again? Yeah. 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 Did you have any I did have tools some palm like cards. That? I did yeah. do some palm cards and I wrote, like, chapter briefs because I would be like, where did I last leave that character? Yeah. Are they on yeah. a bench or, like, are they in bed? And you have to kind of go back and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, pick them up again. <laughs> yeah. Is there another question in the audience? I'm just amazed at the fact that there are so many um, journalists that are sued over things that they've written. And yet I read, well, in Jacqueline's book, that um, this journalist had forgotten to send one story through legal. I mean, first of all, how can journalists write with all this stuff around it? And 
how are there still so many stories that are subject to people suing the journalist? So that's a question about the legaling, the legal diciness of journalism, and um, how do uh, how how do journalists write anything with all the risks that they take legally, and mm. how do so many journalists still end up getting sued? <laughs> do you want to say something on oh, that? Man, I could give like a oh. TED talk on our defamation laws, and I the 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 headline of it, and you know the the biggest target of it would not be the politicians who've failed to reform those laws over many, many years, but it would be the free speech, you know, advocates who talk about everything else in the world um, and cancel culture and all the rest of it and never, ever talk about defamation law, which is actually the biggest hamper on free speech mm. in this country and freedom of the press, and it is actually a disgrace for a Western democracy. <sighs> Um, <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, but and, what, and the what, thing, what would you change? What what aspect our, of it? our laws, like compared to other Western democracies, mm. comparable democracies, our defamation laws are so stringent and they're so um, plaintiff. Skewed, the towards, yeah. skewed towards the plaintiff and courts in this country, judges in this country are notoriously anti-media, um, notoriously so. And so it's very, very difficult. And we don't have a range of defences that we should have. I mean, it's all kind of technical stuff. But the story that I have in the book about, um, about Susie getting sued um, is actually loosely based on something that happened to me. I didn't get sued myself, but we got a very strong legal threat um, from someone who's a very prominent person. If you approached me after the show, I might be able to tell you um, who it is, um, who threatens to sue all the time because, you know, mm. because he's a rich, powerful man who can uh, afford to, you know, defend his legacy through legal means. Um, so that happens an awful lot. Those laws defend the powerful, in my view, um, and they mean that a lot of stories don't get published. A lot of stories don't get published. Right, so fiction is the answer. Yeah, well, yeah. thinly yeah. disguised stories is yeah, fiction. That's right. That's yeah. right. Take your revenge. Authors that can way. be sued too, but you, no, can, I know. you have a lot more excuses. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to thank you all very much for attending. I want to thank Jacqueline Maley and Deborah Oswald for a really wonderful, enjoyable conversation. Thank you, thank thank you. Your Thanks, thank guys. you. Thank you. <laughs>